to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello, and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 198, recorded April 4th, 2015. So today we're covering a couple of uh, Wildstorm one-shots. And they're pretty good, too. Yeah, so one is a Taz story called All of Me, and the other one is a Next Generation story called Embrace the Wolf. Right. Uh, Something I, I do... I find interesting about these two is that they borrow from each other. So uh, we'll see what you, what we mean later. But in the Taz story, something is borrowed from TNG, and in the TNG story, something is borrowed from Taz. So it's a little exchange program they've got going between the two franchises. Right. But uh, all in all, these these are two very interesting stories and. Uh, I will say that there was a surprise twist in one of them that I did not see coming at all. Ah, okay. So we've got plenty of teasers going on. I don't know how much of a teaser. It was just unexpected. <laughs> but you're telling them about it. Yes. I want I want to see if they know what, 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 at what point it turns. And they're like, oh, this is, this is what he's talking about. Right. <laughs> and then uh, the thing they borrow from each other, that's another thing for them to be on the lookout for. Right. In the one case, it's pretty obvious. The other one is a little more subtle, but I think everybody will pick up on it. Right. But to be honest, um, I did not see even the, the obvious one until they told me because I, I was not uh, I, I was not uh, that familiar with titles. You, okay, so you're not a you're not you're not a a child of Taws as I was as much. I, I haven't rewatched it as much as you. Right. Well, yeah, and I grew up with it. So when I started seeing what was going on and a few things they mentioned, it's like, oh, <laughs> I know that episode. Anyway. Okay. Shall I start? Yes, please. Excellent. So this one is Wildstorm's uh, Taws, um, Star Trek. Title is All of Me. Published date is April 2000. Creative team is writer Tony Isabella and Bob Ingersoll. Penciler Aaron Lopresti. Inks Randy Eberlin. Eberline. Colors Nick Bell and Jeremy Cox. Letterer Ryan Klein. Editor Jeff Marriott. Design Alex Sinclair. And a big hand to Paula Block. Okay, so this issue also has a dedication. The issue was respectfully dedicated to the memory of DeForest Kelly, whose portrayal of Dr. Bones McCoy carried the best part of humanity, its compassion, where no man has gone before. Really cool. So uh, DeForest uh, passed on on June 11th, 1999, and this issue's publication uh, was 10 months later. The cover has a starfield background with two sinister eyes looking over the characters in the rest of the cover. An evil-looking humanoid that looks like he could be from Earth has his arms outstretched as if he has control over the planet immediately in front of him, 
as well as the Enterprise, Spock, and Kirk. Star Trek Taw's font at the bottom reads, All of Me, which is the story's title. Two claw-like humanoid hands move in space with no visible body. A creepy voice talks about how men of Earth have vexed it repeatedly in past contests. The hands are about to crush two chess pieces that look like a strange caped human and Spock and Kirk. We can see parts of a chessboard hanging in space, too. The humanoid goes on. But the game is forever changing. The board reset. The prize to this game? That is the mystery. Scene shifts to the interior of an Orion's pirate ship. Kirk and his boarding party are in hand-to-hand struggle with the pirates. In the end, the Starfleet boarding party is victorious, and they take the pirates into custody. In the process, Kirk has a nasty cut in the leg delivered by the Orion pirate captain's woman. Not the kind of thing Kirk prefers to get from such beauty. Later, in sickbay, Bones is repairing Kirk's cut and chastising him for the chances he routinely takes. Kirk explains he simply will not ask a member of his crew to take chances he won't take. Later still on the bridge, Kirk receives new orders from Admiral Fitzpatrick. Despite having a brig full of Orion pirates, they are to make best possible speed to Pollux II, where they will render any and all aid to Armand St. John. McCoy objects, asking why the ship and crew would be placed at the whim of a technocrat like St. John. Spock conjectures it is because he knows St. John from his academy days. Their contact has been sporadic since then. St. John did once say that Spock is the only person in the Federation capable of understanding his brilliance. Kirk asks Spock for his assessment of the man. Spock says he is the most brilliant and most mercurial man he has ever met, conceit and given to outbursts bordering on violence. Spock launches into St. John's origin story, a gifted child who grew up with little love from his parents. His inability to work with people eventually led to St. John's expulsion from Starfleet Academy. As an adult, They talk about his brilliant research that led to his amassing wealth. Unfortunately, his fickle nature led him to ending his promising work on transwarp for Starfleet. They arrive at Pollux II, where St. John wins points with Captain Kirk immediately due to his condescending and rude matter. He is different with Spock. St. John demonstrates respect towards Spock. Due to the special shielding St. John has devised that surrounds Pollux II, he uses his special transporter technology to beam Kirk, Spock, and a small security detail down to the planet's surface. When they arrive, they find that the aid that was sent to meet them, and, in fact, all the people they see around, look like Armand St. John, including the aliens. There's even a tall and thin Talosian that looks like St. John. As they walk to meet St. John, Spock reports he has observed 167 different races that all resemble St. John. That is why Spock thinks Kirk's theory that this is the work of cloning is not correct. A smoking hot lady with red hair sees them into the room that St. John is in. She looks like St. John too, and Kirk is disturbed by his reflexive attraction to her. 
St. John immediately focuses his attention on Spock and belittles Kirk at every opportunity as they walk through the facility. St. John answers Kirk's question, What's going on here? It's all about the concept of the multiverse, or what is euphemistically referred to as mirror universes. Spock and the crew's reports on experiencing one such alternate dimension piqued St. John's interest. Kirk objects, stating that is classified information. St. John says his security clearance is quite high. He insisted on that. St. John presents a huge machine to them, four stories tall. St. John says he has used this device to collect St. John's from the many parallel dimensions and brought them here to create the ultimate research facility, all staffed by hymns. The egomaniacal St. John explains how he will no longer have to spend ridiculous amounts of time explaining advanced concepts to his fellows. The pure genius and number of them will accelerate the pace and breadth of research projects they can undertake. Kirk points out that he is breaking the prime directive by picking these people out of their home universes. They have their role to play in their own worlds, and St. John is depriving those worlds of them. St. John calls Kirk insignificant and is about to attempt to backhand Kirk. Bad idea, by the way. When Spock says St. John is clearly not removing them, he is duplicating them. Spock explains the monumental logistical as well as technological effort required to do what St. John claims. Spock says this is even beyond St. John's considerable abilities. Spock tells Kirk there is nothing for them here. St. John is incensed. He tells Spock he can't have his doubting words reach the Federation and releases three large primitive forms of himself on the landing party. Kirk shoots them with his phaser, but somehow St. John has made them resistant to phaser fire. The entire landing party is overcome and put into clear, suspended balls, some kind of force field. Alternate reality forms of Kirk and Spock are present as St. John explains that the Enterprise won't be helping them. Cut to the Enterprise where St. John's minions are beaming in all over the ship and firing on the crew. An admiral version of St. John enters the bridge with some of the released Orion pirates and tells Sulu to surrender the ship officially. St. John finds that taking engineering is much more difficult as it remains the only part of the ship not under his control. When they finally enter, they find Scotty has shut down all ship systems other than life support, and the ship's shields are raised at full power. He also locked out the ship's computer with a new programming language St. John has never seen before. The real St. John explains to the landing party, who is confined in clear spheres, that he is going to take over the Federation and rule it. He says it will be a new benevolent reign that will be carried out by installing his many others to rule over the many planets and star systems more intelligently and harmoniously than the current fractured system. Spock convinces St. John that he wants to hear more and may be willing to join him. St. John is very pleased and releases the landing party. Spock will be kept under guard also as a precaution. Meanwhile, on the Enterprise, the shields are preventing any more St. John's people from getting on the ship and keeping the ones that are there from controlling the ship. 
General St. John is livid with frustration. On the planet, Spock is examining the huge machine that St. John calls the Gatherer. He talks St. John into a demonstration and ends up grabbing an alternate dimension version of Kirk, who turns out to be a really attractive woman in a green wraparound mini-dress. At first, the she-captain is angry about being taken off her ship, but quickly relents and goes with the female version of St. John. Rather than being convinced of the Gatherer's abilities, Spock says this demonstration proves the Gatherer to be the deception he originally said it was. First off, Spock says the docility demonstrated by that supposed alternate version of Kirk would not be a characteristic of any true ship's captain. Second, Spock says that during his inspection of the device he removed critical control components that regulate power delivery to its systems. St. John is again livid at Spock's assertions. He orders a Romulan version of Spock to put him back in prison. Spock quickly disarms the supposed Romulan version of himself and puts it out with a neck pinch. He convinces St. John to release the rest of the landing party or be shot with a disruptor. Spock explains to Kirk that there are no Vulcan versions of St. John presently at the facility. That is likely due to St. John's fear of Vulcan's intellectual superiority to him. That led Spock to believe that someone else was supplying these alternate versions of St. John, all driven by Armand's distorted view of reality. Since the genetic engineering required to create so many alien St. Johns is beyond his ability, there must be a third party that is providing them. It is the only logical conclusion. As the landing party fully arms themselves and consider their next move, they, can, they receive a communication from the Enterprise. Admiral St. John is seated at the con and gloating that they broke the lock on the ship's systems. The Enterprise is St. John's to command. The weapons vanish from Kirk and company's hands. St. John suddenly has a cadre of primitive he-men to back him up. St. John says if there is an unknown power at play here, it has chosen to back me up. They attack the landing party, while St. John goes to the gatherer to call up more reinforcements. All appears to be lost when Spock grabs St. John's head from behind. He performs a Vulcan mind meld on him. All the versions of St. John vanish in a puff of smoke from the facility and the Enterprise. St. John himself is left sobbing at Spock's feet. Later the Enterprise departs Pollock II with St. John and a copy of his records. They hope one day to figure out what power possessed St. John. St. John himself will not speak and just stares into space. They will transfer him to a psychiatric facility on Elba II. As Kirk and Spock discuss the situation over a game of three-dimensional chess, they are accosted by a huge, fearsome-looking creature who appears across from them. It calls itself to Jin and says he hates all of humanity and that they just played a game. A game he won and the humans lost. Kirk asserts it was Dejin who lost. Dejin says he had several objectives that Kirk is totally unaware of. For one, he took the mind of St. John, which was a small, delicious morsel. Also, while Kirk and his crew were occupied on Pollux too, they were diverted from their true destiny, Lenora IV. 
There, they would have discovered something truly magical that would have improved the lot of mankind for all of time. The djinn says, Ponder what it is you have lost for all of time, men of Earth. Until we meet again. The bridge cuts in, saying they have just received a distress call from Leora 4. Kirk says to set course for Leora 4, best possible speed. Sula reports the signal has faded out. There is nothing there. After Spock has some time to think about the djinn, he formulates a hypothesis. The djinn and his people likely have passed the apex of their development. They see a new race coming up fast behind them and don't like being replaced at the top. What did the Neanderthals think of the Cro-Magnons when they were being replaced? Kirk thinks with cold, steely determination. Until next we meet. And that was a surprise. I was not expecting the genie. No. <laughs> and he looks like a genie. Well, he's he is he, a genie. The outfits and the and, and and the hair thing and yeah, he looks like a genie. Right. Well, that's what gins yeah. are. Gins are. Genies. Yeah. Yeah. But I was not expecting that. And in fact, I was expecting uh, a Q or Trelane uh, once they were kind of building up to something else was at work. Right. And you mentioned Q and Trelane. So, right. um, of course, they've had, they've already seen Trelane, uh, the Taz folks. Sure. But, um, they, I mean, this guy is basically Q in spirit. Yep. So he's not a Q, but there are no. so many ways that he is Q. Well, do we know for sure that he's not a Q? <laughs> okay, don't mess with me. <laughs> okay, so you're saying that he's a Q. That just chose to take that form. Saying he could be, we don't know. But I, I didn't see anything that that said that he, it couldn't have been. Well, no, but I mean, you have Spock's speculation that it was a entity that thinks that he's no longer the 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 prime of their species or whatever. But that could have just been well, BS. How was Spock know anything about Hugh? Yeah, well, he wouldn't. So I'm going that it was a AQ. And this okay. box little comments at the end were just, uh, you know, an ant trying to figure out how electricity works. Just so, just magic. <laughs> yeah, and and that's fine that you choose to think of him as Q. I didn't think of him as a Q at all. I thought of this being just a new big bad villain that the writers of this comic came up with, uh, based off of the template of Q. Um, a nastier entity. Um, he's got a lot of powers, but we don't know the full extent of them. Um, very emotional. Um, he, I mean, he's blatantly driven by hatred of humanity, and I don't think Q is. Um, no. So, but in the end, that whole undercurrent where uh, the Qs are kind of looking at mankind, I mean, they, I don't think, have they ever really said that um, did they actually ever discuss that in Next Gen about that possible uh, motivation of the Qs? Like the Qs have lost a step or two. They're 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 basically uh, they're bored with their with their existence. They've they've achieved it all. They've got it all. They're going nowhere. Uh, but then they see the uh, humanity and the Federation and everything as uh, as interesting and alive and growing. Uh, and that someday they may be replaced. Did they actually ever say that explicitly? 
no. In next gen? I don't think so. But I got the feeling of that possibility. Uh, yeah, I think maybe Q kind of feels like that, but not the Q as a whole. Yeah, the collective. Okay. Well, uh, you know, the Jin actually talk, says nothing about that. That's all the theory of Spock. But, you know, obviously the guy's driven by something. Right. Um, and we're Nats compared to them, so. Yeah. So, I was also kind of thinking of the, what are the, the Organians or whatever, who okay. also have these incredible powers, especially right. when all the weapons kept disappearing and reappearing right. and things like that. That's like, oh, that's that's an Organian thing. But uh, huh? but, the, but they're not all evil and hatred. I mean, they no. were kind of peaceful and right. The exact well, opposite. Maybe it's maybe it's an offshoot of the Organians if we're right. throwing out uh, theories. Right. You know, maybe <laughs> it's the Vulcans versus the Romulans. It's an offshoot, or know, who knows. But how would this? Jin know about the uh, the ancient Jin legends and things like that, and know how to dress himself. And it, know, it, was he actually a Jin from you know ancient times, or is he just like the? I mean, he says it's just a name. Yeah, it's but, it's uh, just a name, but obviously he's chosen to appear this way. I mean, right. I assume that's not his real physical form, but how do we know? Right. I mean, he's probably. He's probably another incorporeal being that can choose to appear as whatever. Right. But so you're saying that maybe he has appeared to uh, Earthmen of the past. I'm saying it's possible. Yeah, and so he is a genie. Right. He's the, he is the basis of the legends and the stories of the genie of genies. Yeah. Right. Gins <laughs> and genies. Well, that's possible. He keeps talking about having been vexed by mankind right? Uh, in contests in the past. I don't know what he's talking about. I mean, is he talking about as far back as, uh, you know, when you know, Alibaba and the Arabian Nights or whatever was written? Right, I don't know. I mean, is he talking about that far back? Um, this apparently is the first time Kirk and Spock have come into contact with him. Right. And he says that he's, he's very long-lived, you know, so, I mean... Yeah. I, I didn't. I thought that he'd lived that long, if not, you know, forever, kind of like a Q. Sure. But it doesn't say. You don't get yeah. any definite answers. Right. Okay, so maybe we're reading too much into it. So the, the main point is he's a new villain that can come back just like Q does whenever he feels like it and mess with uh, ship and crew. Right. Now, Wildstorm didn't have the license for all that long, so I'm wondering if, if he does ever actually come back before they lose the license. Right. Well, we'll find out. Like you say, there aren't all, all that many uh, to get to get through. Right. So if there was such a powerful being like this, and Kirk put it in his ship's log, then then Picard shouldn't really be all that surprised when they come across somebody like you. Like, oh, this is like that genie that Kirk came up with. Or Trelane, oh, well, like Kirk exactly came up Trelane. with. Or yeah. the Organians, like Kirk came up with. I mean, <laughs> there's so many other examples of these omnipotent, powerful people that right. Q, Q yeah. isn't all that unique anymore by the time, Next chronologically time. speaking, we get there. Yep, good point. Uh, and I'm sure the writers of Next Gen just, you know, chose not to uh, 
it chose not to mention any of that. Well, we know that they they picked and choose what was considered real from the, the original series because there's androids that look very human and have emotions and things like that in next or the original series. Yet in the next generation, oh, Data's the first android ever. Well, the first one created by uh, by mankind. Well, did some of those I mean, those, those hairy mud ones were not created by mankind. Yeah, but wasn't there another set that was... I mean, the androids came up several times in the original series, didn't it? Well, at the very least, that second Harry Mudd one, uh, Mudd's Women? I don't know, something yeah. like that. Yeah, um, Women. They, that was an alien race that created those uh, those robots. They were not created by humans. Now, there was, a, there was another examples? one with uh, Lurch was in it. Oh, Lurch! <laughs> Oh right, yeah. So that one, yeah that that was the the doctor, uh, who yeah he create yeah but but didn't that doctor find all that technology to make duplicate robots? I mean I don't think he came up with that. Still, I'm just saying. Every time Data meets up with somebody, he has to tell them that he's the first android. And anybody well, who's watched all the episodes <clears throat> of Next Generation or original series knows that he's not. Yeah, he's the first android constructed by mankind. I mean, he doesn't that, ever say that. He just says I'm the first android. Oh well, okay, fine, whatever. Nitpick. nitpick. Oh, I'm nitpicking. So <laughs> I'm, I'm all about saying. nitpicking. I'm just saying, they, they, they ignored Trelane when they created Q. They ignore all the other androids when they were talking about Data. So it's 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 inconsistent as to what okay. what is I, and isn't. I acknowledge your point. Thank you. That's all I wanted. <laughs> Fine. Um, so I thought that St. John, speaking of St. John, he reminded me totally in his dress and everything of... Ozymandias from The Watchmen. Oh, Ozymandias. Uh, although he's not, you know, obviously he's not super powered or anything, but a really smart guy who dresses kind of like, I don't know, in this case it looks almost like Egyptian or um, definitely ancient world kind of robes the guy wears. Right. So, you know, maybe Alexander the Great-ish, which is exactly what Ozymandias, uh, that's what his thing was. Right, right. No, you're absolutely right. Even even with his hair the way it is. Right. Now, he doesn't yeah. have that crown thing, which sometimes uh, Ozymandias wore. But. Right. No, I, I hadn't thought about it, but you're absolutely right. He does he does resemble him. A little bit. Of course, Ozymandias is a lot more buff. but. And smarter. And smarter? Hey, this guy heck thinks yeah. he's smart, but he sure did get tricked. Well, okay, and something I wonder about is how much of it was St. John and how much was it how much of it was the uh the 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 djinn, um manipulating him. I took it that the djinn didn't really manipulate him at all really, just that he led him to believe that what he was doing was right or what he was doing would work. I don't know. But, but I then, mean, come then on. he's a vegetable he's a, at the end. Well, he's a vegetable at the end. And how did that happen? I mean, okay, so maybe he was subtly manipulated for most of the story, and then at the end, Dijin just snapped his mind? Or was he always kind of 
you know, obviously he was compromised. Because how can you believe that your machine actually does all this stuff unless you actually programmed it to do all those things? But, oh, right. it just magically works. So you're going to – even though you know you didn't program it to do all the sophisticated things you did, it does. I mean maybe you made attempts at it and then all of a sudden it works. I mean even if you're an egomaniac, wouldn't that be something that – even you wouldn't accept as reality? I don't know. I, I'm, I'm just I'm not, not sure how compromised St. John was. Right. Yeah, and I also thought it was odd that, I mean, I get it that there's all these alternate universes or whatever, so there could be more than one human version of himself out there. Right. But, you know, just typing in a few commands, he was able to bring in like three or four of the hulking cavemen monsters versions right. of him. That, yeah, that multiple, multiple ones. Right. That seemed a so, little much. So he grabbed those from three different dimensions or four different dimensions that Joe just so happened to have, like, caveman-style versions yeah. of him? and they're not even caveman-style. They're they're, no, they're big. They're big. Yeah. Now, now, this did give... I didn't say much about it in the synopsis, but this did give Kirk a, a good action fight sequence to do. Yeah, let's not even go there. Why? He took <laughs> out at least one of them. Yeah, that, he shouldn't have. That was Super Kirk. So the phaser. Oh, I hated him. that. Oh, the I hate that. The phaser and the monster just like, yeah, it's a phaser. Well, that alone, that alone should tell you something. But a so, drop kick and a punch to the ears, and he's out. <laughs> well, he only took out one of them, didn't he? Still, I'm saying. And the other ones were on him. It was a phaser hey. set to kill. Because he even oh, said, original? I wish this thing had a, a, a stun setting. It didn't. No, oh, that's a disruptor. Isn't that that's what he had? A, well, he grabbed a disrupt. No, he... he okay, when, when Kirk originally fought the, uh, the primitive guys, he right. had a regular phaser. Oh, so he... It's later in the story when he had a uh, Romulan disruptor from... Right, right, okay. From the... Uh, from the Romulan version Spock. of Spock. Right. Which, by the way, I, I, I call foul here. They explicitly said part of the reason Spock knew that thing, you know, something was rotten in Denmark is because there were no Vulcan versions. Oh, okay. I guess that is right. Okay. So he says there's no Vulcan versions of St. John, but there is because he's, he feels um, you know, inferior in the end to Vulcans. Yet there is a Vulcan version of Spock you know it's it's the mirror universe version of Spock with the beard and everything right so that was there so yes there's not a Vulcan ver or a Vulcan version of St. John but there's a Vulcan version of Spock standing right there wouldn't that threaten your intellect too I don't know that just didn't seem to really make a lot of sense to me when I started thinking about it right yeah, don't and there's a Telosian, aren't they smart? They might even be smarter than Vulcans, I would think. Oh yeah, they're more advanced. You'd think they would right. be. Anyway. Yep. There there might be a hole or two in this this his logic, but it fits cuz he he's not looking at the holes. He's looking at uh I mean, he's crazy. This dude is crazy. Same guy. <laughs> <laughs> he's crazy and he's compromised. So, yeah. So, so did what, you? Oh, go sorry. ahead. 
Did you notice the uh, coloring error in the comic? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the ma- the Spock's magic color dream gold. Dream coat. <laughs> right. So on page nineteen of the PDF, uh, there's like a like a high up shot, and Spock's tunic turned to uh, command gold. Right, and then right below that is a picture of uh, Chekhov, and I, you know, just looking at it, I'm reading it. Going, oh, this is Chekhov. He got he got loose, and then what he's saying is definitely not something Chekhov would say. I know it's just right. Oops, he, somebody made a mistake. I'm the coloring. There you go. Well, maybe he maybe he changed clothes. Maybe he took his shirt off, and that's just his bare back. <laughs> and we know that's not fact. Because we have seen Spock with his shirt off. So, there you go. <laughs> Anyways, uh, so what do you think of all the different uh, aliens and genders of St. John and Kirk? I thought the um, the female Kirk was pretty hot. And uh, interesting to see that they did this female Kirk thing this far back. Right. As opposed to when they did it in uh, in Ongoing. Yeah, so when we were reading the IDW ongoing female Kirk storyline, I kept mm-hmm. thinking that this was in a um, Marvel comic. So when we got through all the Marvel comics and we never did hit the story, I was I was a little confused because I, I really thought that the the female Kirk was from from there. But uh, I was glad to see her. And oh, so you were, were you remembering this? Show. Yeah, I remember the the visual of. The female Kirk. I th- in fact, I think I put it on the website a long time ago. Oh, okay. Uh, the Jane Kirk thing. Oh, well, from ongoing. Both right. of them. I had a comparison of both of them. Oh. This okay. is what, and I think I even on the website I said this is from Marvel Comics and this is from IDW. Oh, but that image from Marvel Comics was actually from this comic. Exactly. Uh, gotcha. Gotcha. Right. But what what I thought was funny is that she does not look like Shatner. She she looks like a woman, um, whereas <laughs> Saint John's female counterpart looks like Saint John in a wig. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but still somehow attractive. <laughs> you thought Saint John was attractive? No, the girl. That's what I mean. The female yeah. Saint John. I mean, actually, she reminded me a little bit of uh, Major L. Barrett. Nurse Chapel. A little bit. A little bit. Yeah, which is not as maybe not as a compliment to uh, Michelle Berry. What? Oh well, come on. I mean, she was pretty. I think the Saint John chick was pretty cute, and I do think, and I thought that was kind of funny that Kirk was looking at her in an odd way because of just what I said in the uh, in the synopsis. Right. I think he was like, "Hey, good looking. Uh, oh, you're a Saint John too. Uh, <laughs> cooties. <laughs> cooties." But anyways, uh, I, I, do you think that the female Kirk looked like Shatner? Like a, like uh, a not overly. See, no. I didn't. I no, not, not, in, not in the face. I mean, in general terms, a little bit, but no. Oh, not um, in the face, so in the... No, no, in the in face. The, in, in the body, he looked a little, little Shatner-ish. Got those curves. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. She looks like she was about the right height, about the right shape. She looked good in the wraparound dress. <laughs> and, uh, you know, with the hair color. Okay, so yeah, the face itself was not exactly like Shatner. But in general proportions and things, I could see that being a female uh, Shat. Sure. 
Even though the face, I'll agree, they didn't go to much effort making the face look like Shad. Right. Whereas St. John woman looks like the dude. I'm sorry. I did not think she looked all that that good looking. Okay. Personal preference. Yeah. I thought she was pretty cute. I did like that there was a St. John Klingon old style and new style. That was love that. that was funny. Love that because when I first saw that, you know, I saw the, I saw the Klingon in the middle first, which is more the next gen version, and I was like, I started making some comments on that, like the, like the bumpy heads are not that accentuated, like like Worf and that kind of stuff, but you know, obviously a next gen one. Right. And then I look to the right, it's like as I'm in the middle of writing this, oh, there's another one, <laughs> but but old style, Taz style. Right. So, is that trying? Is that so? Now I'm starting to do something you do. Try to f- cause justification to things I see, whether it may not be necessary. Uh, but um, so is that reinforcing the idea that there are two Klingon races, um, and they just pick them out? Uh, and there's a Saint John from the one branch of Klingonness, and there's the other version uh, from another. You know, so there's two races on on Kronos, right? And the, and different ones have come to power over time between Taws and TNG. Or is it saying more of the uh, Enterprise explanation, Enterprise TV series explanation, um, that they're just they were changed over time, right? Who knows? I, I think don't it was know. Just an Easter egg for us to talk about. I think it was pretty cool they had them. Yep. No, I liked it. And then they. Now, now the, something that threw me off a little bit is when we started seeing Spock versions. Mm-hmm. You know, alternate dimension Spock versions. Because up until, you know, when the kid gloves came off and St. John, you know, revealed his dastardly plans, we didn't see anything like that. Everybody was St. John. But then, boom, we start seeing uh, two Spock clones. Right. So I was kind of. I mean, did he just whip those guys up, or he just had them off on the side and brought them in? I assume he just brought them in. I think that he just had them on the side. Right. Okay. Because he loves Spock so much that I thought, oh, well, he must have went and got himself a couple of Spocks in addition (laughs) to all his St. James. Exactly. At least that's the way I took it. Right. Yeah. Who knows? All right, my last comment is the Andorian fight at the beginning. Um, I I liked it. I thought, I mean, I had no idea what was going on, but it was an interesting fight. Not not Andorian, excuse me. Uh, yeah, Orion. Orion, right? Yeah. yeah, it was a pretty good, you know, another another amazing Kirk fight. He's just doing all this acrobatics during the fight. Right. He's swinging off of things on the ceiling. He's just doing amazing things. Right. And the uh, the Orion slave girl didn't hurt those those scenes. <laughs> <laughs> right. What was the the name of the the woman and the pilot uh, that was a a slave girl at one point? I forget her name. Pike's girlfriend. Not Pike's girlfriend. Um. Yeah, Pike's girlfriend. Oh, Mina? Yeah, Mina. That's the only oh. time we've ever seen a um, an Orion woman, right? Or an Orion period, right? Uh, of the original series. 
in the original series. I agree with you. Yep, and then we saw an Orion in uh, in the reboot movie, right? Right. So and the slave it, is that is that who uh, that that girl at the academy that helped uh, Kirk rig the Kobayashi Maru was right. she Organian or not uh, Organian? Uh, uh, Orion. Orion. Right. Yeah, she seemed to be. She was. I did think that the uh, chess pieces at the beginning uh, really reminiscent of Clash of the Titans, the movie, the first one. Oh, and also where the gods Cass are playing their episode. games, right? But then with the tiny Enterprise, made me think of Cat's Paul, the original series episode, right? Where the little Enterprise was on a chain, dangled right. over the flame, right? So I was, I was trying to figure out what was going on on that first page. And Genie was not what I was thinking. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Okay. Anything else? Nothing. Okay. So the next one is Star Trek Next Generation Embrace the Wolf. This came out June of 2000, written by Christopher Golden and Tom Sinoski. Pencils by Dave Hoover. Inks by Troy Hubbs and Jason Martin. Ink assist by Christy Stack. Letters by Nagam Zand. Colors by Jeremy Cox. Design by Alex Sinclair. Edits by Jeff Marriott. And special thanks to Paula Block. So the cover shows the Enterprise D flying through a gas nebula of some kind. Picard is depicted in the gas wake of the ship. Below this is a depiction of Data as Sherlock Holmes escorting a frightened woman. And the duo's shadow is shown to be the, the shape of some sort of monster. The story starts with Enterprise D arriving at Enoch 7 to investigate widespread hatred and fear. They arrive just in time to see huge mushroom clouds appear around the planet as they begin bombing themselves. Picard is eventually able to get a hold of the planet's leader, and they are brought up to speed on how the planet's population all started acting strangely, and violence started breaking out everywhere. An away team beams down to offer aid. At one point, Crusher leaves the main group to help someone that's trapped under some rubble. Once Crusher returns to the main group, she's all smiles as they walk through the carnage. Eventually, she comes up with a reason to beam back to the ship. Once there, she says that she has longed to be back in a Federation vessel. And she touches a computer console, and we see a spirit leaving her body and entering the ship's computer. The spirit soon makes itself known to the crew of the Enterprise. Through the intercom, it tells them that he is now in control. It refers to itself as Red Jack and starts to terrorize the crew. Picard orders the crew to not be afraid since they know that fear will only feed Red Jack. Data recaps the episode Embrace the Wolf from the original series, stating how the original crew of the Enterprise defeated Red Jack by beaming it into space. Red Jack has taken up residence in the holodeck recreating the Jack the Ripper scenario since it once was the real Ripper. Data enters the holodeck, and Red Jack changes his clothes to be that of Sherlock Holmes. 
Red Jack thinks this is a game. Ripper versus Holmes. He then starts to beam random people into the holodeck and scares them to death. Literally. This includes the main crew as well. Though they somehow never die like many of the other unknown crew do. Worf at one point is an enraged beast, but Picard is able to calm him down. Eventually, they make their way to a solder house called Montgomery and Son on Scott Street. This is obviously a reference to Montgomery Scott's uh, encounter with Red Jack from the original series. While this is happening, the leader of Enoch 7 has ordered the Enterprise destroyed so that Red Jack cannot do to another planet what it did to theirs. Back in the slaughterhouse on the holodeck, Worf battles Red Jack until Red Jack starts to lose his control on the other parts of the ship. Eventually, Geordi is able to beam Red Jack into a torpedo casing, locking the entity within. The people on Enoch 7 stop their attack and request to be custodians of the captured Red Jack so that they will never forget what happened to them. The end. Ha ha! Red Jack! A little uh, borrowing from Taw's land. Right. So that episode was actually called Embrace the Wolf. They, they, if if I would have known the the title of that episode, I should have known right away it was going to be Red Jack. Hmm. Wolf in the Fold. Oh, it's not even. It's it's called Wolf in the Fold. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's not Embrace the Wolf. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So that whole one was uh, Red Jack was just taking over one person at a time back then. And that was the wolf in the fold. So it was a very peaceful planet back then, too, in that episode. And then Mr. Scott was seen as the, you know, the, the villainous outsider that actually murdered someone. You know, nobody murders anybody on this planet. And then that was the wolf in the fold. But actually, it was Red Jack who was jumping, jumping bodies later. But being able to, uh, you know, affect that many people, uh, that was never in his repertoire in the original Taws episode. Right. Well, maybe having his atoms, you know, beamed out into space, wide beam, and <laughs> gave him some more powers. See? Wide beam. It solves everything. Wide beam. <laughs> True. A little harkening back to a different, an earlier episode of ours. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, one of the things I love best about this is when uh, when Data's uniform changes into Sherlock Holmes' outfit on the holodeck, and he says, "Well then, I suppose the game's afoot." I love that because that's you know that's what Sherlock Holmes says. Um, you know, especially in that Sherlock TV series BBC, um, that's a big thing Holmes says when he realizes I got a really good case. Right. The game's afoot. So well, I love that. He's he's very well versed in the Arthur Conan Dowell stuff. Doyle, yes, Doyle, exactly. Thank you. Ah, so I liked the Jack the Ripper stuff in this one. I, I liked the way they depicted him. You know that he doesn't look like Jack the Ripper. He just looks like this amalgam of different monsters. Yeah. Now the head definitely is some alien life form. Jack the Ripperish kind of thing, and he's got the really thin sword, but he's got weird-looking like appendages and things. Right. Um, like one arm is a tentacle. 
seems wrapped around right. The, right. the scabbard. Right. One arm's a tentacle, and then his one of his feet looked more like a horse's hoof, at least rather than a foot. Oh, I didn't even notice the foot. Yeah, so the, bo- both legs are black and stuff, but the left foot, it looks like more of a hoof than a foot. Um, and of course he looks... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, I see it now. So does he look like... He he's definitely looks like demon-y, you know, with the glowing eyes and stuff, but is there like a little bit of a mechanical... No, probably not. I was thinking there might have been like a mechanical kind of thing in his face, but uh, no, it's it's all just demon-y kind of look. Right. Yeah, he does have that one eye that's always like a a bright light. Right. Anyways, I thought it was good. I liked I liked it. Um, I don't know why he would have gone to the holodeck and recreated all this instead <laughs> of just continue to torture the people and kill them that way. I mean, because well, in the show he, he actually <clears throat> killed people, right? He when he was in somebody's oh, yeah. body, they would kill somebody. Yep. Not just, Ooh, I'm going to scare you till you're dead. No, he would kill people. And it was yeah. the fear that came out of them when they were near death, or they knew they were going to die, which is what really fed him. Okay. So I don't think he had to actually kill people, but he did. He liked that too, apparently. Right. So he, so... he, was, he was, you know, in the original Taz series, he was a, um, he was small time. You know, he would be attacking one person at a time. In this one, he's attacking an entire planet, which is interesting. An entire planet's population as he's setting off, you know, nuclear at least, or at least some kind of uh, big-time explosions. Right, but I thought he was just bouncing into person to person. I I still thought it was one at a time, right? That he he would bounce into somebody until they did something that... That then yeah. made some other people scared, and then they would start retaliating, and yeah, he, eventually he's, it escalated. Yeah, he's jumping one person to one person. But now, instead of being a one-on-one kind of fear-mongering, he set an entire population into fear. Or, or kill, yeah. I mean, an entire population. That's pretty big time. So no, you're not jumping into everybody, but you're jumping into the guy that apparently has his finger on the button of the... Uh, you know, planet-wide munitions. Because that was kind of an interesting uh, visual as the Enterprise was arriving at the planet and getting into orbit uh, where they saw what looked like multiple nuclear explosions coming up from the planet's surface. Right. So that was pretty... Uh, that's pretty... pretty. That's pretty horror. That's horror there. There's a lot of fear coming up off the population that way. But he was just <laughs> right. eating up real good. And what his uh, chosen uh, cuisine is, and then he's and then when he was Crusher, I mean, it really was evident because he's just all smiling and uh-huh. <laughs> stepping over dead bodies with a big grin on his face. Yep. And speaking of Crusher, Andiana, it's like I think this is one of the best depictions, most attractive depictions of those two characters. Uh, I mean, they almost look like Little Mermaid hot, you know? <laughs> well, no, no. I, I, I think that's I, the wrong thing to say, Kane. I That's probably a wrong thing to say. But come on. Those people at Disney, the way they drew some of those characters, like in the past couple decades, they're drawing them rather attractively. And in this issue, uh, the artist 
is drawing the uh, those two uh, female characters pretty good. Right. I mean, I mean, look that one shot with Crusher as she's alone walking around in the um, you know 1800s. In the, in the uh, dress, London thing in the in the dress, mm-hmm. where the like the peasant girl kind of dress, and then the shoulder, you know, it, uh, that that was by design, <laughs> and I and I applaud that design. But, <laughs> no, they were say. they were they were looking good in those dresses, but they were also looking good when they were just in their normal Starfleet attire. Oh yeah, oh yeah, earlier, which yep. those those uniforms aren't usually all that attractive, appealing. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, hats off to the artist. Yes. Uh, Dave right. Hoover. Right. Dave, excellent job. <laughs> and not just with the women. I, I thought no. everybody looked great. Uh, I, I really liked the the look on Data's face often. I mean, right. they really captured the, you know, the, just the different expressions, the subtle expressions that, that he has. You know? Right. Uh, uh, I agreed. Thought, I thought it was great. And there's that one point where Worf, again in the hollow deck, is getting like cut, ripped in the back and the and the arm and the chest, and he goes, uh, you know, ape, you know, and he does that roar, and then the look on his face is really good. I I think. Right, and I even liked the way the the old Enoch Seven um, president was. I thought he was a, a woman at first, but. Uh... That's what I later, thought. He's actually called he, so right. But uh, just looks like this very diminutive, wizened old, you know, like a almost like a Yoda type, just small character, lots of wrinkles. I thought it was great. I, I thought it really fit the the character. And when sh- and when he's like ordering the destruction of the Enterprise, you could tell that it's weighing on him. That it's not. You know he doesn't want to do this, but he doesn't want another planet to be destroyed uh, by Red Jack. So he's got to you know do this one evil thing to save how who knows how many other lives in the universe. I thought it was good. I agree, quite good. Yeah. So I I thought the artwork was rather uh, unique. Um, it was not as unique. I mean, it kind of had its own style. I thought, and uh, although it was not as unexpected as N Vector. Um, yeah. Right. That was a very that's a very unique and maybe not universally loved style, at least not by me. Uh, but this one was unique. But I I truly liked it. Very very good. Agreed, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you weren't too far off when you were saying the Disney thing, because I mean, people do look a little cartoony at times, but it works. Yeah. Good job. And uh, Picard looks really good in that. Uh, that Commodore's uniform or whatever it is. That was the one part of the story I didn't really care for. Well, you didn't like him in the uh, in the period outfit? Right. No, I didn't like it. Oh, okay. Well, I, okay. Maybe I just don't like that outfit. I mean, right. Well, you just don't like Generations at all, do you? <laughs> That's right. I forgot he wears that. Yeah. I, I don't know. Well. So, what, did you think it was wise for them to put that containment device that kind of looked a little bit like a, a short photon torpedo from Taw's era? Um, did you did you think it was very wise of them just to put it on the surface of a moon? No, it's not wise at all. You should <laughs> launch it into the sun. Okay, let's talk about that. Because I was thinking the same thing. 
And not only that, uh, I want to equip the thing with a multi with multi-phasic shielding, so you could actually shoot it deep into the sun. So not on the surface, because it would just burn up. The the casing would just burn up before you even got near the sun. No, I want to go as far into the sun as possible, then you turn off the multi-phasic shielding. And even though Regek is a being of energy, come on, that's got to destroy him. <laughs> what about a black hole? A black hole, that would work. Because even if he didn't get destroyed, he'd be shot out in the other side of something. Assuming black hole that, would work. Assuming that there is another side, or you just crushed... Well, that's the other thing. It could just be the strict crushing. Now, the only problem with that, again, before it even gets near the event horizon, the black hole, the containment chamber is going to be ripped to pieces with the tidal forces of the uh, the supergravity going on. Right. So, um, just so long as the containment field is not ended and the energy being still has the ability to get away from either the sun or from the black hole. So, Isn't that funny, talking about this like it's real? But right. either way, I think that would be good. And I would like to amend my uh, black black hole thing. Um, okay. Obviously, this is Star Trek, and we know that if you go through the black hole, you'll go back into back in time. So I, I apologize for my <laughs> lack of knowledge of Star Trek lore. So, uh, yes, we know what happens when you go through a black hole. And you can surf it if you want to. <laughs> I didn't know that uh, Robert Block wrote um, this episode. Um, what's it called again? Wolf in the Fold? Wolf in the Fold. Okay, who's Robert Block? He's somebody of significance. He wrote uh, Psycho. Oh, really? Huh, I didn't know that. So the, uh, the novelist who wrote Psycho. And then he also wrote, uh, seems, Cat's Paw and What Little Girls Are Made Of. For the original series. He wrote three episodes of the original series? Right. Cool. I didn't know that. Huh. And Psycho, a fantastic book. Uh, did he write the script for the... Did he adapt it for the for the movie? Uh, no. He just wrote the novel. Oh, okay. He could have, obviously, if he's writing TV right. episodes. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, he wrote the novel, then they made the movie, and then he wrote Psycho 2, the novel... Uh, because he found out, you know, this is like 20 years later, that they were going to make a Psycho 2 movie. And, and so he got out in front of it? Yeah, he got out in front of it. And it's a completely different story. Huh. Huh. And then uh, then he wrote a third one, too. But um, I, I didn't care for Psycho 2, so I haven't read Psycho 3 yet. Right. But anyways, yeah. I just thought that was interesting. that uh, I did not know that he was a Star Trek writer. I did not know that either. Very good. Well, so thanks to Wildstorm Comics for pointing that out to me. Yeah, and maybe um, so we've got Harlan Ellison, mm-hmm. who's wrote written many wonderful things and a Star Trek uh, episode. Uh, we've got uh, this gentleman, and then I wonder what other famous uh, writers that have done other great things have written Star Trek uh, episodes. I don't know, but I might uh, thumb through the IMDP page just, to, just to see yeah. who else who else out there. Exactly. So it's kind of like uh, Neil Gaiman writing Doctor Who episodes or something. There could be some really uh, great writers out there, more than we know about. Right. 
well, you shouldn't know. This is your. This, you grew up with this. You're supposed to know all this. What? Hold on a second. <laughs> <laughs> Since when does a ten-year-old kid or something go ahead and check, uh, you know, writers? <laughs> I mean, for the most part, you don't care about writers. You just care about the buzz of watching the show. Sure. I'm kidding. So, anyway. It was a joke. Okay. So that's all I have to say about this one. It's. I, I thought this was an enjoyable book. Um, I think I like the Taz story a little better, but I thought this was very enjoyable. Um, good art, you know, uh, hearkening back to an interesting villain, and uh, I liked it. Yeah, I thought I thought both of these books were really good. I, mm-hmm. I really enjoyed both of them, and both of them went into directions I was not expecting. The right. the genie thing, complete surprise, and right. I was not that familiar with Red Jack, so when when it turned out to be Red Jack, I was like, "Oh, I do remember that episode." Right, and I did not see that coming. Right, so neither neither did I. So yeah, both of them were good. I thought. Right. Cool. All right. So next week we have a big one. You ready, Ken? I'm ready. So we are going to cover one issue entitled Star Trek Special, and uh, it has. Yeah. One, two, three. A lot of stories. Four, five, <laughs> six stories. Yeah. I so I start it, I, I started looking through it and it's um and at first when I when I was reading it's like, wow, that's a So it's it starts off with a Taz story. And it's like what oh whoop wow, all of a sudden after only a few pages, it's on to a, a different story. It was like, Well how, oh boy, these are kinda of short. And then right. actually finding out how many were in there, it was it's quite a different format, I think. And there's a Deep Space Nine story that's more based on the um, the alternate universe where the writer is writing about Deep Space Nine in the 50s. Right. Yeah, and so it's Cisco writing, right? Right, right. Is that uh, Benjamin, right? Or no, uh, Benny, that's his name. Right, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so no, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to reading these. And then there's yeah. a Voyager one, and then a movie era and a TV era of Star Trek, I think. Yeah. Uh, we've had we've had some other issues that have had like maybe four stories, three stories, but really no more than four. This one's really chock full of nice small bite-sized stories. So a little different. Yep. So that'll be next week. So uh, might be a long one since there's so many different stories. Well, I'll do my best to be sh- shortish. But they're relatively small stories, and so I guess you know, we'll be ping-ponging back between them. So, uh, right, you'll be dizzy from yeah, all so the each, different narrations. Yeah, each story is about ten pages long, so they're yeah. not too terribly long. Right. Okay. Well, give people a little something to look forward to. Excellent. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us, everybody, on the review, and we'll see you next time. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes. Or friend us on Facebook at first name, ST Comic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. <laughs>